This is, if you remember, the second in a four-part series that we're doing on the book of Haggai. Four weeks ago, maybe five, four-week break, five weeks ago, we did an overview of Haggai. We had a look at its background, and we discussed the major themes that go through the book. And I'm not going to recap on that too much, except to remind you on who these people are. <clears throat> as you were reading through that, and as it was read to us and you were listening, I don't know about you, but I know that every time that I have been reading it, my first impression as I have this word of God coming to these people is to think how bad they must be. That God just dumps on them so. He hasn't blessed them and he hasn't kept them. And he goes on about just the way that they are and the way that they've turned away from him. And you kind of think, man, they haven't learned a thing in their exile. We talked last time about how these were the people who had come back. We looked at the first couple of chapters of Ezra, Ezra 4, 5, and 6. So just to recap on who are these people. Note, these people are the people of God. Not just the people of God in the sense as they are Israelites. These are people who have demonstrated by their words and their actions that they're followers of God. These were the ones who returned to the land. These were the ones who, when the, the command was given by Cyrus, king of Persia, that his, the temple of God should be built again in Judah, and the call was put out, any of his people, this is from Ezra chapter 4, any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide with them silver and gold to go and make freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. These were people who returned to the land because God was stirring things up in their hearts. They gave up a land that they'd been living in for at least 60 plus years. And they went back into a land where they had no homes, they had no jobs, they had nothing, but God was working in their hearts. These were people of God demonstrated by the things that they had done. Last time we also talked about the fact that these were people who worshipped God, who worshipped him on the basis of the law of God as God wanted to be worshipped. Ezra says about these people that they worshipped in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And he also says they praised the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. These were people who worshipped God as he wanted to be worshipped. They worked hard in ministry. They planned hard to work. They set themselves tasks. They had people who were put aside to do particular work. Other people came and offered to help. The people of the land who had been left over from the time that the people from, from the northern kingdoms had been taken away and had come down and moved down here, they said they were followers of God. They came and offered to help the people of God. But we read in Ezra, these people said, no, thank you. They said, you have no part with us in building the temple to our God. This is a work for God's people to do. We don't need the secular world to come in and help us. We don't people who are not real followers of God to come in and help us build the temple. They, they, these guys were dedicated. They suffered opposition because of their work. 
The people came and tried to stop them working. And it was only when, it was only when the law came down from Nebuchadnezzar to say, stop the work. There was legislation put in place and they were threatened. They were threatened with violence against them. That was the only time when they stepped back from living and ministering for God. So because of opposition and because of all the economic restraints that were put on them, as we read through this chapter, there was a, a drought that was going on. There was difficulty in, in, in having work. They had to put aside the work that they were doing on the temple and they began to care for and look after their families and their careers. And, and they made a good home for themselves. And if I think about that, godly people, good people, people who wanted to worship God according to his law, people who wanted to be faithful, you couldn't question their zeal. You couldn't question at this time their desire or their commitment. You couldn't really question their ability or their preparedness. They're, they're wanting to perform in, in God's way even through world's opposition. And you really couldn't question the fact that in and through all of that, they decided to do what God commands them, which was also to look after their families and to look after their homes. And I don't know about you, but as I read that, and as I think as that's the people that he's talking to, not, not the wicked ones, if you like, not those who didn't know God, not those who didn't care about God, not those who were liberal theologians who didn't read their scriptures, not those who didn't know how to praise the Lord, not those who were secular in their religion, the godly ones, those people who had sacrificed so much for God. And I don't know about you, but as I think about anything, who can take exception with these people? Who would take exception with godly people like that? In Haggai chapter 1, as hard as it seems, God takes exception with these people. Exception that, I don't know about you, but I think sounds very hard. It sounds like he's talking to people who are unconverted. It sounds like he's talking to people who are wicked. But these were people that had obeyed God. They'd prioritized worship. They'd not followed other gods. They'd not been slow to work. They'd only stopped because of strong physical opposition from their neighbors and from the government. And yet God doesn't pull any punches here. God doesn't give them an easy way through here. He takes strong objection to this. I think we need to have a look at that. And of course, you can probably see where I'm heading with this in terms of application. So keep applying that thought through as we talk about this sort of stuff. Because I know that I look out as you guys. You're godly. You want to worship God according to his law. You don't want the outside world to come in and determine for you your practices. You want to be faithful to God. You want to care for your life. You've undergone many of your opposition and persecution in some sense or other because of your faith. And you read these sorts of chapters and you think, well, maybe this isn't for me. I wish my friend so-and-so had been here. But I want you to begin to apply some of this. You see, I think the reason that God takes objection to here and he takes exception with these people is that they have forgotten that they are not a bunch of volunteers. 
They're the people of God. You see, God had called these people through their whole history to be a blessing to the nations. He delivered them from Egypt. He had given them land. He had worked out his plan through them throughout all of history for these people. He brought them into exile because they had rebelled against them. They had, they had denied his sovereignty. They had denied his love. And in many ways, because of their idolatry, they would even denied the very reality of God himself. And yet he had, he had punished them. He had disciplined. He had brought them to himself. The exile had taught them to obey the word and to look to the promises of God. And when they had come back, godly, law-driven, God-driven people, they had understood that they were the people of God. But somehow, they'd stopped thinking that way. And they had now begun to think of themselves, if you like, as the people of God. And the emphasis had changed. God was still in their life, but he wasn't the center. And God comes in very, very hard on these people because it's these people that he redeemed through the Messiah who is coming. And he has brought them to himself and he has made them to be his people with the emphasis on his people so what does he say to them in chapter verse 2 he, he goes through the, the 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 leaders the prophets to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and what does the Lord say to them through the prophet Haggai he says these people say I don't know if you can sense that I don't know if it's sarcasm I don't know what it is but there's this 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 negative tone to what God is saying and what he says is pretty harsh these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The God, good, godly, committed, serious, world-rejecting, Bible-believing people have begun to drift. They've drifted into a lifestyle that included God, but which was not driven and guided by God. And you know what? God isn't interested in that. He's not interested in being a part of our lives. He wants to drive and to govern us. These people were saying, it's not time yet. It's not time yet to do which God has commanded us to. God looks at the hearts of these people and he says, I don't care how committed you were in leaving Babylon and coming to Jerusalem. I don't care how honesty and integrity governed your worship. I don't care how genuinely focused on my word you were. I don't care that you faced down the world and rejected their resources. What I care about is now. I care about the passion that's going on in your heart. Basically, we learn from Haggai chapter 1 that God does not tolerate people who have lost the vision and the passion for building his kingdom. He wants people to stay focused on being his people. And so he says to them, down in verse 5, down in verse 7, give careful thought to your ways. Think about what's going on in your life. In verses 5 through 10, there's this, this if you like, there's this comment on probably what I would consider an economic recession going on. 
You've thought to your ways. You've planted much, but you've harvested little. There's obviously a drought going on. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you don't have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You've thought to your ways. And it's almost like he says, haven't you had a little bit of a a question in your mind what's going on in my life? Haven't you thought about it? Haven't you asked yourself, why aren't I seeing blessing in my life? Or corporately, ask as a church, why aren't we seeing blessing as a church? And his answer to them is, because I find no pleasure in your ways. Verse 9 says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, what happened to it? He says, I blew it away. He says, you look after your own homes, you look after your families instead of looking to my house. He's talking to the godly people here. Talking to the committed people here who have lost focus, who have lost passion. And he says, considered your ways. He said, you've lost your vision. You choose your family over church. Don't you see it? You choose your career over church, over my people, over getting out and sharing gospel. You choose your career. You spend your hours making the mortgage get met. Seeing and making sure you have a good circle of friends. You focus on these things. Don't you see? What I want is you to be genuine. He says to the people in Haggai, say, my kingdom is an aspect of your life. But I expect my kingdom to govern your life. These are people who are redeemed by the blood of a coming Messiah and he owns them. Application. We are the people redeemed by the blood of Messiah, and he owns us. He owns us. He says, consider your ways. He's saying to the people, what's your heart's desire for God and for building his kingdom? How much do you care about the kingdom of God? Do you really care about the loss? Does it go to the core of your being? Does it drive you? Is it your passion? We talk here about things like praying for the loss. We talk here about things like meeting together and sharing the gospel. We know what we should do. And yet we've become content in many ways with what we've got. Because we say the time, the time's not yet here. And we're satisfied with what we have because we've got so many other things that are important and okay to do. And God comes to similar type of people in the time of Haggai. He says, consider your ways. We can look at and we can talk about so many things about the blessings that we think that we have. We think God is doing all this sort of stuff for us. But he says, have a look at it. Is this really what I promised my people? Two, 
three new people coming to the Lord every year out of a group of 100? Is that really what I'm expecting from you? Is, 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 is that it? We say, but it'll come, Lord. It'll come when the revival happens, Lord. In your time, it'll come sometime. Not just now. And he says, well, why do you think that is? Do you think that's persecution from the outside world? Do you think that the fact that, that, that they're stopping this happening? What he says to the people in Haggai's day, he says, no, I blew it away. I blew it away. You wanted, no, I didn't give it to you. You thought it was going to work, and I, I didn't bring it. Why? Because I don't want to be just a part of your life. I demand to be everything of your life. You're not volunteers. You're my family. You're my servants. I've redeemed you. You're my people. <laughs> There's a lot in here. No. And, you know, I, I look at this as I've been reading this through during the week. Who did Haggai send this message to? He sent it to the leaders. He sent it to the leaders and said, what, what's going on with your people? Why are they like this? Are you doing your job or aren't you doing your job? That's what he says to. That's what he says to Zerubbabel and to Joshua. These people say this, consider your ways. What's going on with you? So I'd ask ourselves, ask me, I was thinking about it. Why don't we see the blessing of God? Are we satisfied with what we have? Are we content with what we've got? Is, is this Christian life that we now live, that which we read the scriptures and we think this is God at work in us? We get contented so easily with the things that we see and the things that we have happen around us. The message of Haggai chapter 1 is that if we put anything before God being the governor, the Lord of our life, driving our passion. Our passion for the church, God's people. Our passion to reach out and have Christ glorified in the world. Even the personal things that are good, like looking after and caring for our family and having a good life and a good career. If God is not governor of those things, God comes down hard on those people. Or very quick applications besides the obvious ones. Putting all these things before God or in front of God or instead of God, we can do that and still appear very successful Christians on the outside. People can come past and look at us and say, hey, you got everything going for you. And yet God comes and says, I'm not interested in that. I want you to be mine. 
The second thing, it's unacceptable behaviour regardless of the reasons. That's the funny thing that I find as I read through this passage. The reasons don't count. I need a nice house. I've got to get my studies in place. I don't know how to talk to those people. They don't like me. We're not quite ready yet. We don't have enough people to do this. There's not enough groundswell to get it done. They don't like me. We're getting persecuted. The law doesn't let us. We don't have enough money. And God basically says, I'm not interested in your reasons. I want obedience. That's what I want. I want myself to come first in your life. Third application, I think, for us is, and I think we learn it from these people, that often we don't understand the discipline and the chastening of God. We look at our lives and we go through year after year and we're never quite satisfied. We put these plans in place and it doesn't quite happen. Or God takes the things we have and he blows them away. The things that we're aiming for don't quite make it. We're never quite there. And when we look at that, we just don't get the fact that a lot of this comes from God. A lot of it's discipline, and a lot of it's chastening, and a lot of it's saying, wake up. Take a look around. Consider your ways. This isn't working because you're not, is what he's saying. Fourth thing. When we live in that sort of situation, we never actually, it seems, are satisfied. We don't get, people don't get what they want for their families. And they don't get what they want from God. I know I can think of this personal experiences in my own life. I'm not going to share them. We don't have time. But when you do things for him to know that no matter how bad and how awful or how crazy life gets, you find great satisfaction. You get all your desires met because your desires focus on what God wants for you. And other times you do stuff for yourself or you allow God to be a part of what you're doing and things seem to be so much better, but it's never quite enough. Because God says we are only going to have all these things when he is first in our life. Zerubbabel and Joshua, the leaders, and all the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. These people, godly, good, Bible-believing, worshipful, non-secular people who had drifted heard God say to them I want you all you're not volunteers you're my people they considered their ways and they obeyed him and it says in verse 13 then Haggai came and gave this message to, from the Lord I am with you declares the Lord 
And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. God stirs them up in their hearts. So finally, I, I don't know what God's doing in your heart. I don't know if he's stirring you up or not. However, that is the work that God does. He stirs us up. He makes application of his word to our life. He says, this is what I want in your life. This is how I want you to live your life. These guys obeyed. I challenge you, don't wait a week, a month. Don't say the time is not yet come to do what God wants in my life. Don't say that. Do as these people do. Having been challenged what they need to do, say, yes, now is the time. I found this an enormously challenging chapter. Because I know that there's lots of times in my life when you're not quite sure whether it's worth it to take this step or to talk to the person or to stand up for Jesus or to do whatever else. You think it's someone else's responsibility or it'll happen next time it's not right now and God says to his people here I'm sorry that's not acceptable I don't care what your excuses are I don't care what your reasons are I'm thankful so much that you have been faithful to me but having been faithful is not enough I want you to be faithful now whether you're young and you haven't yet stepped out and said, yes, that's what I'm going to do for God, I want you to think about that. There is no time too young. Say, yes, I'll do that. Yes, I know that's how I'm supposed to live. Yes, that's what I'm going to do for Jesus. Keith Green, one of my famous sing favorite singers, he was giving this, this great sermon. He says, you need to make certain that what you're doing is what God wants. Parents, excuse this for a minute. Don't go to uni because your parents want you to. Go there because God wants you to. Don't get that job because people around you say that's the best job. Do it because God wants you to. In all of the decisions, the people that you go out, etc., do it because God desires you to do those things. Whenever you let anything else take the fact that God is governing your life, then God says, that's not good enough. I just don't want to be a part. I want to be at all. And then I look around at some of those who are older, my age. I'm older now. Or really old, my parents' age. Right? Think back on your life. Is your faithfulness that you look back on, I was walking with God, is that in the past? I have a vision and a passion for ministry and for Jesus and the lost. Is that in the past? Well, if that's in the past, these people are still God's people loved by God. But God says, I'm not interested really if it's in the past. I need it to be now. I challenge you, have a think about these things. Examine the satisfaction that you have with life. And just ask yourself the question, what is God saying to me? I think this passage, God says, consider your ways. I, I have control and governing over your life. 
when things happen, let you, let, I want you to know he says that this is me at work. Come and find out what I'm doing in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an amazing God. And yet so often we... we it's not that we forget. Or we push you to some side or we put you in your box or we slot you into those few hours of our day which are God hours. And as you've read in your word, you're not, you're not satisfied with that. You're satisfied with everything. Anything less than that is sin. Father, I thank you for the people in this congregation, godly people who love your word, who seek to worship you, who want to honor you, and I pray that you might stir their hearts, stir up the hearts of the leaders, stir up the hearts of the people, that we might follow you and obey your word. We might have a passion that you might govern and lead us. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.